Welcome to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio, sponsored by EarthX, the world's largest environmental experience, and also sponsored by Natural Awakenings Magazine. Live your healthiest life on a healthier planet. Now here's your host, Bernice Butler. Welcome to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio today. We are now in our second season and more excited than ever to continue to help you explore and understand the unbreakable relationship between your health and the health of the planet. Here we look at the hottest topics related to our environment and its sustainability and how they affect your health and wellness. Here are issues like climate change, plastic pollution, extreme weather events, and others will meet up with everyday impacts like allergies and asthma, digestive issues and gut health, cancers, lung and heart issues, and more. So listen in today as we interview experts for today's show on the city's built environment infrastructure, coexisting with our health and well-being. And today we're going to focus in on healthy cities, healthy people, their intersection with the planet. Their environmental quality has a profound effect on health and the burden of disease. In the United States, the environment-related burden of disease is increasingly dominated by chronic diseases. Many policy decisions affecting environmental quality and health transcend the authorities of our traditional health departments and their programs. Healthy decisions about the built environment, including housing, transportation, and energy, now require a very broad, collaborative set of efforts. Three to four billion people, which is about half of the world's population, now live in urban areas. And this number might rise to around 6.3 billion by the year 2050. The proportion of the global population living in cities will be about 60% by 2030. And it's estimated that urban growth will be greatest in Africa and Asia, followed by Latin America. Even in the long, old, established urban areas in Europe, urban population growth during that period is estimated to increase significantly. And this growth will not only result in more megacities, which are defined as cities of more than 10 million people, but increasingly it'll be concentrated in Asia, but also in more medium-sized cities, especially in Africa. During the last thousands of years, the Earth has provided a very hospitable environment for human societies to flourish. The natural greenhouse effect provides a comfortable climate, and water flows across the globe support humans and their activities. Humans are so used to exploiting the resources of the planet and enjoying the free, clean air, water, and the climate that the biosphere provides that these resources are simply taken for granted. They are unvalued and certainly undervalued and unaccounted for by our socio-political and economic systems. The externality concept that is at the heart of environmental economics, or should I say the notion that environmental issues is something that I don't have to be concerned about or I'll be gone when the worst happens is far too prevalent. The tendency as societies develop is for the environment to be seen increasingly as something that can be controlled, something that can be commodified and used to serve human needs, while at the same time serving as a receptacle for our discarded waste. Everyone 
Depends on a healthy environment, though, for good human health, with health understood as physical, social, and psychological well-being. However, many in our society are fundamentally dependent on nature for its direct supply of air, water, land, and food to sustain their very livelihood activities as well as to sustain their day-to-day survival and health. Indigenous peoples and local communities have long revered the forest and waters and have treated these resources as the gifts from God that they are. In fact, these communities who live on approximately 22% of the global land surface have actually still managed to conserve approximately four-fifths of our global diversity. It is evident that the urban transition very much coincides with massive shifts in the planet's systems which support human life. The warning signs are clear, they're all around us, and they're wide-ranging, all the way from rising temperatures and rising sea levels to ocean acidification, loss of our forest and biodiversity, as well as increased impacts of extreme weather events. And yet, we're also seeing strong net improvements in human conditions. For example, less poverty, longer lives, better health, and more opportunity. The concurrence of these very trends is no fluke. Cities cover just 3% of the land surface of the earth, but they're responsible for as much as 80% of all greenhouse gas emissions, three-quarters of natural resource consumption, and half of all waste. And yet, cities also generate 80% or more of our global economic output, providing livelihoods and opportunities and offering many the chance to lift themselves up out of poverty, though they also exacerbate poverty in some circumstances. So essentially, cities have come to drive the world in all its goods and bads. Cities have been designated and still are for narrow economic goals or for technical efficiencies. For example, for automobiles. And in some cases, rather than for people, automobiles trump as well as some other things. In other cases, these persistent problems are the result of unrecognized or unaddressed complexities. And all of this dictates our health as well as the health of our planet. And this is a lot. (laughs) And so here today to help us unpack some of this are Sarah Hammerschmidt and Monica Hinn, both of the Urban Land Institute. And Sarah is Senior Director with the Building Healthy Places Initiative at the Urban Land Institute, where she develops content and programs focused on the impact of the built environment on public health. Throughout her career, Sarah has done extensive work on issues that lie at the intersection of health and the built environment. So she's the perfect person to help us try to unpack some of this. Sarah holds an MS and a PhD in Community and Regional Planning from the University of Texas at Austin, which is my alma mater, UT in the house. There, her research focused on developing recommendations for how planning departments across the country can incorporate public health considerations into their work. And Monica is a senior manager at the Green Print Center for Building Performance at the Urban Land Institute. And the Green Print Center is a worldwide alliance of leading real estate owners, investors, and strategic partners who are committed to improving the environmental performance of the global real estate industry. They realize you cannot 
unscramble or disconnect the two. Monica has extensive experience in sustainability data collection, in creating awareness around real estate sustainability, best practices, and city engagement strategies. Monica is a lead green associate and a FitWell ambassador, and she holds a BS in biology from the University of Virginia and an MS in aquatic resources from Texas State University. Texas in the house today, y'all. Welcome, Sarah and Monica. And did I get all of that right? Yes, you did. <laughs> you did. Thank you, Thank you. Good. And I am so glad that you all could join us today to help us. With our very long intro, we probably don't have a lot of time left in this segment, probably just two minutes. But let's start off by having you all define for us a healthy place or healthy cities. When I think of a healthy place or a healthy city, and I think you hit a lot of this in your intro, I mean, I really think of a place that prioritizes people and the needs and the health outcomes of people, first and foremost. You mentioned the automobile. I think that, you know, the way that we've evolved um, specifically in this country to designing and planning and developing our cities, we've had a very strong focus on the automobile, um, on separating land uses. So I don't know how much you've talked about zoning, but, you know, we've, zoning is sort of how cities lay out where different uses go. So, you know, we've got the area for housing, the area for industrial uses, the area for commercial. And if they're not well connected with transit, people have no choice uh, but to drive to get there. And I think that, you know, these have sort of led us to the place that we're in today, which where we're seeing a lot more um, incidences of chronic disease than we had in the past. So I guess there aren't not really a straightforward answer for what a healthy place in a healthy city is. I think that there's um, a lot of components. Um, but when we talk about health at the Urban Land Institute, we use it, the definition from the World Health Organization, which is the state of um, physical, mental, and social well-being, not just the absence of disease or sickness. So we're really talking about how can people have opportunities to make healthy choices in their lives on a day-to-day -day basis, and, and how do we design our cities and our neighborhoods and our buildings really support that behavior. Indeed, and I'm glad that you brought up zoning, and I hope that we will spend some time on it today. Being an OULIer myself, <laughs> as well as in the development industry, I know the importance and the power of zoning. But in our other four shows this month on the built environment, we've not talked about it a lot. I tended to bring it up a little bit. But to me, and we'll talk about it a lot more later, that's a really a place that, as we like to focus, ordinary people in their everyday lives can focus and make a difference, but I think the issue is a lot of them don't know about it or are not aware of it. So hopefully we'll talk much more about that. We're going to go ahead and go to break now, and we'll be back on the other side with plenty of time to talk, and we will start with Monica on the other side for her to weigh in on our definitions of healthy city as well as those key elements. We'll be right back. We want to give a shout out now to our sponsors. That is Natural Awakenings, Dallas-Fort Worth Magazine, the Green, Healthy, and Sustainable Living Authority for the DFW Metroplex and North Texas communities. Print issues of Natural Awakenings can be found in all Whole Foods markets, natural grocers, central markets, sunflower shops, and many, many other locations, as well as available free for download online at nadallas.com. Check them out. Our other sponsor is North Haven Gardens, 
serving the Metroplex since 1951, the most respected horticultural establishment in North Texas, offering gardening and plant education, concierge services, DIY classes, gifts, and more. Check them out at nhg.com. Our other sponsor is Lynn Dental Care, practicing dentistry for over 38 years with a holistic approach, non-mercury, looking at the whole body. Specializing in periodontics, Dr. Lynn is board certified by the International Academy of Oral Medicine and Toxicology. Check them out at lynndentalcare.com. Thank you, sponsors. Welcome back to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio today to our show on Healthy Cities, Healthy People, Intersection with the Planet. And we are back with Sarah Hammersmith and Monica Hinn of the Urban Land Institute, experts there who have a lot to share with us. And Monica, I want to start with you now to weigh in on our definition of a healthy place and healthy cities, as well as the key element of successful cities. I want our audience of ordinary people and their everyday lives to understand what this really means and what it means to them. Sure. So, I mean, I think Sarah covered a lot of the main points. So I want to think a little bit more about the building level and the space level that people are really inhabiting and how those areas can be healthy. And I think, you know, there's a lot of great design strategies to help people feel more connected to the natural environment and, you know, to make sure that they're accessing that. But then there's also a lot of building technologies of increasing ventilation, um, improving the thermal comfort of a building through um, additional insulation. So there's a lot of different design and technology strategies that can be implemented to improve the individual's health that's residing, working, playing, anything in those spaces. Indeed. So moving forward on this a little bit, how do healthy cities impact on the natural environment? And I guess we can talk about the opposite, too. What's the bad part of that? But let's talk about first is how does a healthy city help or impact or promote or encourage good things on the natural environment? Yeah, I mean, I think they sort of go hand in hand. So, again, when we we think about health, and I sort of gave you that definition of, of, um, you know, it's more holistic than just like you're not sick. But we think about it in terms of, of, you know, for the for pub, for the public, for public health, it's, it's physical health, it's mental health, it's social health, um, but we also think about environmental health. I mean, I think you can't have a truly holistically healthy place if you're not really considering all of these different components. And so I think, you know, you're not, if, if you're, if you're de- developing a city that's full of very energy efficient buildings, but you don't have access to park space, or you're tearing out a lot of trees and green areas to get those buildings, means that really a healthy place. So I think there's there's this balance. So we need all of these things. I mean, people need, there's, there's many studies that show, you know, access to green space promotes physical activity and then promoting physical activity reduces instances of chronic disease, such as you know, obesity, diabetes, um, heart disease. So we have to sort of have all of these components and have people have equitable access to these components in order to have a place that's actually healthy. So I don't think we can have a healthy city without a healthy natural environment. And I think when you mentioned climate change earlier, we're sort of seeing a lot of the impacts that so much concrete in our cities and so much change, so many changes to the built environment is, is having on our natural environment. It's having to look at everything collectively, which is what makes this so challenging. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to hear the term holistic 
in the conversation of building, construction, the built environment. We use that term a lot when you talk about health. It's interesting and I think very appropriate and very good, and I hope that is used more and more in this conversation. Yeah, I mean, that's when, as long as I've been thinking about how the built environment impacts public health, I've, I've sort of had that we have to think about health in a holistic way and all of the components that go into that. It's interesting that, that you mentioned that because I think that one of the things that we're learning through a lot of this work is that um, different professions have different definitions of terms. And it's really important, you know, when we're talking about the built, the built environment, there are so many different players involved. There are real estate developers, there are architects, there are landscape architects, there are urban planners, there are um, you know, elected officials, there's the general public. Everybody has um, or should have a voice in the way that the places that they live are you know, created and the, and the decisions that are made about them moving forward. So I think um, you know, people really understanding what a lot of these different terms mean and the different definitions that they can have is, is pretty critically important. And I think that's, you know, especially between different professions that are involved in this, I neglected to mention the public health profession, which <laughs> really needs really needs to be at this table. But you know what I think? Knowing ULI and having been a member and worked very in-depth with it many years ago, and I don't know what y'all's membership is, the percentages, but I know most developers belong to it's, Urban Land Institute, and that's what actually, I want. It's only about 30% of our membership. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah we're, we're, we have a very diverse membership. Okay, because I was a developer when I was a part of it. And it seems as though, to me, developers have a very big determination on a project and its environmental sustainability and its focus. And so going back to Monica, because you seem to work more on that end of things, is holistic a term that you all use or that the people you work with and that end of things recognize and respect? That's a great question. I would say before, you know, the past year or so, I'm not sure that people would have really thought about health in those types of terms. I mean, you know, there's a handful of building certifications that people were becoming more interested in. People are doing a lot more research on the relationship between the health of the person and the space that they're working in. Mm -hmm. um, but I think, you know, this past year with the COVID-19 pandemic, interest in a, a, quote, healthy space has just skyrocketed. And so developers, they want to make sure that they're developing for their tenants. So, you know, the tenants, the either the office tenants or the individual residents that they're trying to get to be tenants of their building, they want to make sure that they're addressing all of their concerns. And right now, health is a major driver. You know, we've heard from different developers and they're saying, I used to just talk to the facilities manager and for a specific company. And now they're like, I hear from the CEO of that potential tenant because they want to talk to me about the health of the space because they're really concerned about providing the best possible options for their employees. I hope we can hold on to a lot of that. I know that we'll hold on to some of it. Again, my hope is that we hold on to a lot of it, but it's very heartening to hear that the conversation is being had. So now back to healthy places or healthy cities, what are the economics? Is the cost significantly more to lay out, to zone for and build healthy cities and care more for the environment or not? 
are higher costs something that may be driving it or not? Monica, if you can weigh in on that first, because you're more with the developer side, and they are more concerned with the money. Yes, yes, they're very concerned about the cost of, of the building. I would say, I think that to build a healthy building, it's not necessarily about the cost. It's more or less about rethinking what health means and then making those investments. And I think, you know, as long as developers feel that there's going to be a return, whether that's through, you know, leasing faster or leasing at a higher cost potentially, or, you know, just allowing a tenant or having a tenant re-sign their lease, any of those things, that's going to drive them to make that investment. And I think right now they're seeing the value in making the investments in health. Um, whereas, you know, in the past, I think the conversation was a little bit more difficult, but now I think that's only going to continue into the future. Indeed. And they have you all at ULI and the work and the studies and the convenings that you all do to help to push them along and empower them. Because I remember back in my development days, I would have to try hard to convince some of my development partners maybe to even put some fancy dressings around the window. And I remember one particular project we were building multifamily, I went so far as to actually lay it out for them and show them that it's not going to cost any more. But yet it will add so much more value to the building to put these fake clapboards around the windows. <laughs> yeah, I think that's, that's the real power that ULI has in terms of creating those case studies and showing you know, here's an example of something that went really well, and it was either cost neutral or maybe it even saved money. And I think sometimes people just don't know how to make those investments or where to make those investments. And then for a building owner, some of those things that they're investing in, if you put in better insulation into your building, maybe you're going to spend a little bit more on the insulation, but your, your building is going to be tighter. You're going to spend less to heat and cool your space. And so you might see some operational savings on the back end. And so just having those examples to be able to say, you know, here's how someone did it, here's what they might have saved. And, you know, people can really learn from that and then be able to implement it in their own projects. Have you all seen localities in terms of their zoning and code or whatever drive some of that? I think a lot of that is starting to happen more like very recently. Um, so, you know, a, a couple things that have happened um, think very recently, like maybe late last year, maybe even this year, Minneapolis became the first major city to um, eliminate single family zoning, which basically means they don't, there are not going to be neighborhoods in the city anymore that they are going, you know, there, there is more opportunity to have more of a mix of housing within neighborhoods that were previously single family. And then Buffalo, I believe is the first major city to eliminate parking minimums, which means that developers don't have to build a certain amount of parking. I mean, you look around you, there are, this is, in this country, there are eight parking spaces for every one car. So we are way over parked in this country. That is a huge cost to developers. So there are some really promising things happening that I think, you know, will increase housing choices and also um, will be able to reduce pavement um, and, and, you know, have developers have a little bit of extra money to implement some of these more healthy building strategies. Well, I know even back in the day in Austin, they tried to do some of this via incentives. While in Austin, they actually did codify the amount of impervious cover that lots could have, there were sometimes incentives where they would give you 
more building, more height, or more width if you did certain things. I see that as a way, too, that cities through their codification and the work they do can help. We're going to go to break real quick, and we'll be right back on the other side to have a lot more of this very interesting conversation. Thank you, ladies. We've been with Sarah Hammersmith and Monica Hinn with the Urban Land Institute, and we will continue talking with them about healthy cities and healthy people. Thank you. Welcome back to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio, to today's show on healthy cities, healthy people, intersection with the planet. And again, we are back with Sarah Hammersmith and Monica Hinn with the Urban Land Institute. I want to start with Sarah, and then we'll also let Monica weigh in. I want to look at what are the trade-offs when we look at or try to build healthy cities? What are the trade-offs to do that with the building of the healthy city and the health of the people and the health of the environment? Sarah, you want to start us off on that? Yeah, I think that's a really good question without probably a very straightforward answer. Um, I think I could give you probably like a laundry list of of a lot of different components that could go into a building or into city design that we know we have evidence makes it a healthier place. So for example, you can put, if you put open stairways into buildings and sort of hide the elevators that encourages people to take the stairs rather than just defaulting to the elevator. If you put signage to, you know, show people where the stairs are, especially if they're going up only one floor or two, they might be more encouraged to take the stairs. Adding in sidewalks into neighborhoods, um, adding in, you know, healthy food retail into neighborhoods that maybe have not had access to grocery stores, adding in new parks. There are all these things that we can do, but I think that that the thing that, that we have to be very careful of and that nobody has really been able to solve yet is the threat of displacement. You start to invest in neighborhoods, particularly neighborhoods that, you know, have been historically under-resourced for whatever reason, and all of a sudden people can't afford to stay in their homes anymore. And, you know, oftentimes there are people that really could benefit from having really easy access to services or um, recreational spaces or things like that. You know, I think... um, you know, I was trying to think about, like, what would be a good example? Like, what is a, what is a healthy place? Where is a healthy city? And I, I think when it comes down to it, like, at least in the U.S., like, I'm not sure that one exists. Because when you start really drilling down and looking at health outcomes of the people that live there, there are huge disparities um, in terms of life expectancy, in terms of chronic disease. And those fall um, along lines of um, income and, and on race. And I think, you know, until cities can start figuring out how to more equitably make investments in the built environment while at the same time putting policies in place to ensure that people are not kicked out, um, that they can stay in the places that they love. You know, people have social networks built into their neighborhoods if they're forced to leave. Like, like that's a huge health impact right there. Stress, um, the cortisol hormone, like when that, when you're stressed out and that is released, that can have like major impacts on your health. So, you know, I, I think you can't just look at like, what are these elements that I can include in my building or include in my city, like to make it healthier? You have to think about what those sort of downstream impacts might be. So, you know, it's great that developers can do these things and that they can have, um, you know, higher value for their building. But, you know, if that's going to then increase the value of buildings surrounding there, and then all of a sudden people can't afford the rent and have to move further and further away, maybe they can't afford an automobile. I mean, this is why I think this is so complex. Unless, unless every place in this entire country, in this entire world has, like, 
kind of this, you know, the same things in the same neighborhoods, we're always going to have this issue. Sometimes things happen that may cause cities and developers to almost have to. Like when I lived in South Florida, the people who provided essential services in Key West could not afford to live there. So they would have these buses that left early in the morning to take the workers down there and leave at night to bring them back. And that actually drove them to do some interesting things or to pay attention to affordable housing. You know, people having to take that two or three hour bus drive back and forth and lack of the workers that they needed. So sometimes it just drives them into it. Other times it does not. Monica, can you weigh in on that a little bit? Because one of the things that was coming to my mind as Sarah was talking is, what if you had a traditional inner city neighborhood? It seems as though it could be made more livable and more healthy if they added some things like grocery stores and parks and things like that, if they retrofitted it. Talk to us a little bit about the trade-offs that you see and the possibilities. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great point, the idea of, of retrofitting, right? Because we're not building new cities. We're, you know, a lot of the buildings that we're residing in are going to be here for another 30, 50 years. So we have to really think not just about how can we make new buildings great and healthy, but how can we make sure that what we currently have in our building stock is also healthy and serving the needs of the community. And I think really the challenge and what I liked about Sarah, uh, what Sarah was saying was equitable investment. And so it's really about how can we make sure that there's money to invest in you know, those neighborhoods to make sure that those homes that people live in are weatherproofed, are properly insulated, um, have all of those things that you know maybe a new apartment building that is market rate rentals is they're going to be able to have that. But how do we make sure that people living in the community already are able to have that great space and healthy space as well? How can everyday people in their everyday lives know or tell that they're living in a healthy city? And beyond that, why should they even care if they're living in a healthy city or a healthy place? You can start us out on that one, Sarah. Well, I mean, I think that they should care whether or not the place that they live in is healthy because it, it will likely have a direct impact on their own or their own personal health outcomes and the health outcomes of you know, their family and friends and their loved ones. Um, I think, you know, I think it's really powerful, especially when we're talking about things like development, planning, zoning, that people, you know, the general public is not probably by and large all that interested in necessarily. I think when you talk about it in terms of health and how um, how things are designed impact your health, it makes it a little more understandable to people. And particularly if you bring public health professionals to the table, I think, you know, they sort of have this this level of, of trust sort of built into that profession that, that maybe a city planner or a developer that people are just sort of like by nature skeptical of might not have. Um, so I think, you know, because of the trends that we've seen lately in chronic disease and because of the more recent trends that we've seen, you know, infectious diseases are not over. I think people... Oh, they are just starting, we have yeah. been told. Ever since yeah. we started Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio in October 2019, and one of our early shows was about extreme weather events. And so every show, 
particularly the experts and scientists that we would have on all the time from Queensland, Australia, because they were having all the fires and everything. And they were telling us, we are going to see a lot of interesting things because of the fires and the extreme weather. Things are being killed off that either stop something or allow something. And those things being stopped or allowed are going to cause other things, pathogens, to grow. And we're seeing it. And this is just the beginning. Our researchers and experts are telling us. Yeah. And I mean, I think it's because we've developed, you know, just the sheer amount of development that we have in this in this world. And that, that's going to continue, as you talked about in the intro. I mean, I think that's, you know, their direct, I'm pretty sure, direct causality between, you know, the things that we've done for, like, modernization of this planet and, um, you know, weather events and, and the natural environment. Indeed. Monica, what do you think? From my perspective, a way that we've seen a lot of people get engaged in how their city is trying to be healthier, be a better environment for the community is a number of cities are developing climate action plans. And so this really goes to the intersection of human health and climate. But a lot of cities are thinking about their climate change plans with regards to the health of their citizens. So, you know, really mapping out the air quality of their different neighborhoods and how that might be contributing to things like pediatric asthma rates um, and really thinking about it in that kind of sphere. And so there's a lot of opportunities, I think, to get involved in those climate action plans. I think people, cities are looking for feedback. You know, we here at ULI, we work with a lot of people in the real estate industry, and they're always looking because their climate action plans are gonna impact buildings, they wanna have that conversation with developers, but they also wanna have that conversation with the different neighborhoods and communities within a city. And so, you know, I know cities like Detroit try to, you know, find and hire people that are local to certain neighborhoods to really go out and communicate what a potential climate action plan could mean for them and how it could make their lives healthier, how it could make their houses better, how it could help them have a healthier family, all of those great things. So I think there's a lot of opportunities for people to get involved. You just have to, you do still have to, I think, still make the effort to research and figure out where that might be. Now, all cities do comprehensive planning, um, which is sort of directly related to zoning. Comprehensive plans are, you know, sort of a, a vision for the city going forward. And those are fantastic ways for people to get involved in sort of shaping the future of their city. And, you know, I think cities are getting better about doing outreach and making sure that more people are aware that this public input is happening. But also, like, you can always write to your city council, um, write to your planning commission, other city boards. I'm on our planning, the planning commission in the city where I live, and we read public comments. Um, and we, you know, we, we take that into account when we make our decisions. So, you know, people, people are there to listen. It's just the public, I think, doesn't always know the right channels to funnel some of their and again, back to our purpose with Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio, too. A lot of people just don't realize or have not internalized how it's really affecting them. I said in my intro a phrase that people look at it as an externality. Mm -hmm. It doesn't affect me. They don't take it in. So we've got a way to go. But we see, and our work shows us that they do care about the health, so that when you approach it from that way, it does make the antenna 
go out. We're going to go to break really quick now, and then we'll come back for our last segment to cover some really important things. Want to look at the tools available, want to look at retrofitting, and look at some examples of what's going on as well as looking at the drivers of healthy cities that bring about healthy people and help the health of our planet. So we'll be right back on the other side of the break with our guests, Sarah Hammersmith and Monica Hinn with the Urban Land Institute. We want to give a shout out now to our sponsors. That is Natural Awakenings, Dallas Fort Worth Magazine, the Green Healthy and Sustainable Living Authority for the DFW Metroplex and North Texas communities. Print issues of Natural Awakenings can be found in all Whole Foods Market, Natural Grocers, Central Market, Sunflower Shops, and many, many other locations, as well as available free for download online at nadallas.com check them out. Our other sponsor is North Haven Gardens, serving the Metroplex since 1951, the most respected horticultural establishment in North Texas, offering gardening and plant education, concierge services, DIY classes, gifts, and more. Check them out at nhg.com. And our other sponsor is Lynn Dental Care, practicing dentistry for over 38 years with a holistic approach, non-mercury, looking at the whole body. Specializing in periodontics, Dr. Lynn is board certified by the International Academy of Oral Toxicology and Medicine. Check them out at lindentalcare.com. Thank you, sponsors. Welcome back to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio to today's show on Healthy Cities, Healthy People, Intersection with the Planet. And we are back with Sarah Hammersmith and Monica Hinn with the Urban Land Institute. And I want to continue the conversation we were having before the break. We were talking about how we retrofit to make healthy cities. And I want to talk about any examples that you all might know of where this thing might have been happening, has been done, or were there conversations? Because that, to me, is one way to really make a difference. And then what tools are available to do that? I mean, I think that uh, there are actually a lot of good examples of cities that are healthy um, in Europe. And I think think a lot of it comes from just the way, like, the, the sheer, like, size of cities. Like, cities in Europe have been around for I don't know, centuries? In the age have, of them, yes. Yeah, I feel like they didn't have as much land um, to develop, and and so they sort of, you know, developed very densely, and so you can have these integrated, um, you know, integrated housing and shopping and parks, and, you know, you can walk to your office, and there's transit because it was developed so long ago. Um, and then you look at the U.S., and sort of it was developed in a lot, think more of like a sprawling way. I mean, you know, we have a few very dense cities, which I might point to as if you just sort of look at, you know, top down, like what are the the elements that are in the city that would allow you to live a healthier life? I mean, places like New York and Chicago and like some of the bigger cities that have, have, you know, are older and really did build up around, I think transit is a really key component. Yes. Not having to get into your car and drive places and being connected, um, I think that just like gives you a lot more opportunity to, you know, be more physically active. Indeed. And we are seeing a lot of cities around the country have been for the last 10 years trying anyway to help through their zoning 
by having more inclusive zoning and more dense zoning in urban places. Because again, I think in Austin, almost all of their zoning requires a mix of usage. But then there are other places, other cities, especially the suburban satellite cities, and dare not you even breathe <laughs> anything that smacks of density. Yeah, and I think I think density is it's almost like a bad word for yeah. a lot of people. Like, you know, I don't think they, in general, I think people don't really understand what it means when you say density, you immediately think of New York City, and I don't think that's what a lot of places are trying to do. I think, you know, infill and being, like, people, if you ask them, like, would you like to be able to walk to a coffee shop? Would you like your kids to be able to walk to school? Would you like to be able to bike to work? I think people would be like, yes, of course. But then you start saying, well, we're going to have to increase the density in order to have the households to support those things that you want. And all of a sudden, it's 80-story skyscrapers. And that's not what we're talking about here when we're talking about density. We need to come up with a sexier word for density or a fake word for density. (laughs) (laughs) Where they don't really know what we're talking about, but that's what we're talking about. Because there's a whole set of people, too, though, that really love and appreciate lifestyles like New York and Chicago and D.C., some of the more dense urban cities. And they do have grocery stores that people can go to. Some of us would like to walk to the grocery store. Makes a difference. Monica, you work more with the developers. What are you seeing on that side of things? At the building level, there's a lot of opportunities for retrofitting buildings. And there's a lot that developers are really excited about. And so, I mean, I think I've said it before, but something as simple as weatherization, just making sure that it's properly insulated, so you don't have to spend as much to heat and cool a space. Um, There is a lot just replacing LEDs. Something like that can be really simple, and it just lowers the energy cost that you have to pay on a space, but it can also help you in terms of reducing the emissions that your building is putting out into the city, and so it's just making, making the broader community a healthier and a higher air quality space. Um, by considering those the greenhouse gas emissions that buildings do emit. Um, and then I think, you know, just on the policy side, I know you talked a lot about transportation, Sarah, but I think there's some interesting policies, um, especially out in California, but other areas of, I think, Seattle is considering it, and that's a ban on natural gas in new buildings. And so, you know, natural gas can have some health impacts if you're using it, to heat and cool your space or to heat your space as well as to, you know, cook your food on. Um, combusting that natural gas can have an impact on the air quality that you're directly breathing in your apartment, in your house, any of the of uh, any of the above. And so, you know, cities like Berkeley, California, they've they're passing bans on all new construction, can't have natural gas. Um, and so, you know, those are some new policies that developers are looking at and they're thinking about, you know, nobody wants I don't think developers are excited about policies that require them to do anything, but they do want to get ahead of it. So, you know, they do want to start thinking about how, you know, well, if Berkeley's going to do it and some other cities in California and then maybe Seattle picks it up, maybe somewhere in Colorado, maybe out in the New England, you know, they want to get ahead of that. If I'm a developer and I have a large portfolio across the United States, I better start thinking about how I might do that in a market where I'm developing. And so that can have some really you know, great health outcomes for the people living in those buildings or working in those buildings. So let's move on, though, and talk about how healthy places and healthy cities intersect with climate change and how are they challenged 
by climate change? How do they impact? How do they drive climate change? And how are they challenged by it? And what are we doing to rise to the challenge? Let's go ahead and start with you, Monica, on that. Yeah, I think I see them as being very complementary, healthy cities and cities that are addressing climate change. I think often you're going to see them trying to kind of handle both at the same time in a, you know, in a climate action plan, like I mentioned in the past. And so cities across the United States and internationally, they're passing ambitious climate goals, and those climate goals impact the built environment, um, including the places that we live. And so, you know, something as simple as zoning in California is going to require net zero buildings uh, in the future for single family residential as well as commercial. And so that's going to reduce the greenhouse gas emissions emitted from the built environment. And I think that's going to improve the air quality of the areas where they're being built. Is that already in place where California zoning requires net zero buildings or is that coming? That's coming into effect. Okay. That is, that's amazing. I love that. Is anybody else doing that? Might it spread? There's other, I think it's definitely going to spread. I'm not sure. I think Washington, D.C. has some net zero requirements as well for new buildings. All of this is new building. It's it's not necessarily retrofitting your old buildings to net zero standards, but I do think that is possibly going to, I mean, it's going to have to be done if cities are going to get to net zero. And as it really takes and sticks with new construction, as you know, it'll go to the retrofitting. Like back in the day when I was a developer, it's like usually in South Florida, the trigger was if you were doing about 50% rehabilitation, then you had to do some things like the new builders had to do. So I'm very glad to hear that because I think policy-wise, that's going to be a really big driver. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I think, you know, people are even going forward instead of just thinking about what are the operational impacts of my building in terms of emitting greenhouse gas emissions, but also the impacts of um, the materials within the building. So embodied carbon, so the greenhouse gas emissions that come from creating, transporting, um, eventually disposing building materials, that's something that people are starting to quantify. And the real estate industry is looking at that in terms of, you know, not just the space itself and how it's functioning, but how can we make sure that we're creating the materials to build those buildings in a way that is healthy and, you know, low emitting? Indeed. We talked on, I think it was maybe the second show on built environments this month. We talked about that construction and some of the materials. We have one minute to go, and I want to give you ladies one last word, starting with Sarah, then with Monica. Things you would want our audience of ordinary people in their everyday lives to know in terms of what they can do to help drive solutions. Go ahead, Sarah. I think I'd encourage people to, um, you know, to think about how the environment around you impacts your health. Like I've encouraged people to go out and sort of do like a walking audit of their neighborhood. Like what are things that you can walk to? If the answer is nothing, but there are things that you would like to be able to walk to. I think, you know, then it's, it's, it might be time to start thinking about, um, you know, emailing your city council and asking for, you know, what are, what are your goals for this city to be a healthier city? Are we going to be able to, you know, create more mixed use places? Um, are we going to be able to get better transit service so I don't have to drive my car everywhere? You know, I think thinking about future generations and how what we're doing today is really going to impact the kids um, today. Thank you so much, Sarah. We appreciate that. Monica, last word in 30 seconds. My goodness. Okay. So I would just say there's a lot of opportunities for you to get involved. There's resources to one, educate yourself on how, you know, how climate and the built environment can impact your health. And then I think there's just 
find opportunities for you to get involved and be an active participant in the conversation. Are you looking, do you own a business? Are you looking for a space? Maybe try and find an energy efficient building or a building that has a focus on a healthy space. Um, just try and be selective and consider that as part of your normal day-to-day -day life. Indeed. Thank you so much, ladies. We really appreciate your help. You've made us smarter. We have been with Sarah Hammersmith and Monica Hinn, both of the Urban Land Institute, talking about how healthy cities and how they come about and that intersection with the planet and our health. Thank you so much. And thank you today, listeners, for listening in to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio. The conversation starts here, but our goal is for it to continue in your home, in your social circles, your workplaces, at the water cooler, and in the grocery checkout line so that we can all work together to realize that healthy living is simply not possible without a healthy planet. Our culture is the result of a trillion tiny acts taken by billions of people every day like yourselves. And each of those tiny acts can seem insignificant, but all of them add up one way or the other to the change we each live through. This is your host, Bernice Butler. Thank you so much for listening today and join us again next week as we move for the month of June on chemicals and toxic materials. And listen in to any of our past shows on podcast wherever you get your podcast. Thank you.